0: So it's really interesting, the words about our lives that turn out to be true are sometimes very often not the words that we would think would be all important in the moment. On the day that I was ordained, a lot of words were offered to me as blessing upon my ministry as it began, but the most important and indeed prophetic words that I received were these. Whenever you go to find a new place where you're doing your ministry, whatever community you are in, whatever city you will serve, find the home team to root for. Last year, it worked. I was at game five. You can check my gratitude list from last year. It's posted, my top ten gratitude list from last year that I posted this morning, just to give you an example of how a gratitude list works. Number five, game five, Phillies, dash, dash. Yes, this has happened to me twice. I was in South Florida serving a congregation outside Fort Lauderdale when the Yankees, my beloved Yankees, yes, played the Marlins and were up 2-1. And end up losing the series. So it's far from over. I wasn't gloating. The man who offered me these words. Forest Church. The late, great Forest Church. One of my teachers in ministry. Whoever he is and whatever form he's at right now. Is laughing at me. And he's right too. Because. Let me say this. That if, 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 if people. Don't jump down my thoughts. If the Yankees should go on to win. Let me say that much like. The moment in the Seder, if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, and it's after the plagues have been visited upon the Egyptians, and that moment where, in remembering that ancient story of liberation, we are to recall that our freedom is not truly free because others suffered free as the Israelites became free, and we reenact that story. When there's a win-lose in freedom, it's not complete or true freedom. And I am not finding equivalence between the ancient story of liberation in Egypt, and what will happen to me emotionally, and what is this happening to me emotionally between the Yankees and the Phillies, but you get the deeper point, is that truly, I say, if the Yankees go on to win, such is the nature of our connection here, and the nature of our community, our tribe that we are building, that I will have to pour off from my figurative cup of rejoicing, just a few drops, because my joy will not be complete, because so many people who I care about have suffered. I would only ask that if the shoe's on the other foot, you pour off a few drops from your own cup of rejoicing. So it's been an interesting little thing for me. And of course, the stakes are not very high, ultimately. It's one of the great things about sports, is that we get to sublimate all that competitive energy into rooting for other people. And at the end of the day, someone wins, someone loses, and the world is not at stake. But too often for some people, sports and professional sports can seem like war by other means. I mean, if you listen to the crowds in Yankee Stadium, you listen to the crowds at Citizen Bank Park, there is an edge, there is that anger. Not that Philly fans have ever been angry before, right? There is this sense that somehow something deeper than just the game is at stake. And it is at those moments that I want to wake up and maybe see what's going on there. Those moments in which... Something deeper and perhaps also more problematic is being played out. One of Dickens' most odious, most mean-spirited characters, and he said this approvingly, he said, in life there are beaters and there are cringers. In life there are those who beat and those who cringe from their beatings. It's not what's going on in the World Series, but what's going on in the World Series is a certain kind of win and lose, us versus them, and as long as we keep that on the baseball diamond, it's okay and it's safe. But what happens when that attitude spills out into the rest of life? And it's the beaters and the cringers, the winners and the losers, those who are victorious and those who are not. What happens when this attitude of winning versus losing of be on the right side versus the wrong side? This attitude spills out into the rest of our society. This is the cause of so much stress and pain and indeed anger in our world. This idea that there are just winners and there are just losers and we can only be one or the other and not daring to dream that in fact a deeper victory could be won for all, for all of us. Dr. Andrew Newberg, some of you know, I I preach about him from time to time in some of our small groups, we study his work. He's what they call a neurotheologian. He takes a look at the deepest levels of people's brains when they're at the, the most rich parts of spiritual practice. And he identifies one major element in our world today that he considers to be a threat to who we are as human beings above all else. The signature problem its one word, anger. He considers anger to be the thing that threatens not just our survival as a species, but our full functioning as a species, as human beings. He says because if you take a look at the brain scans of people when they are angry, it's some of the most reptilian stuff that's going on in us, that evolution has equipped us with long, long, long ago in our evolution, long ago before we were recognizable to ourselves. It's that kind of stuff that gets activated. And so we might recognize that, you know, there's no such thing really as left-wing anger. There's no such thing as liberal anger or conservative anger or right-wing anger. There's just anger. And from his studies of who we are physiologically, neurologically, spiritually, that anger is a threat to our own health. And it is a threat very much to our society and our hope for our societies. A very different view from what Dr. Andrew Newberg identifies as a problem, is the work of Karen Armstrong. Do you know who Karen Armstrong is? She's a wonderful thinker, writer, teacher. She was at one point a Roman Catholic nun, left the order, and then slowly found her way back to a status that she now calls freelance monotheist. She is in a very, very deep way a universalist. She has written books about the life of the Buddha. She is a student, not just in the academic sense of the religious life, but she's a student because she wishes to know how people practice their awakenings. Well, on November 12th, she is associated with the group that's going to release a document that I think has the capacity, the potential to be truly revolutionary in the best sense. Her group is called the Charter for Compassion. She has been working from some money that she received from something called the TED Prize that gave her quite a windfall a number of months ago. And she has been working with people online through a number of different platforms and religious communities all throughout the world and has been identifying what is the red thread of who we are as religious people when the best of us, not the worst of us, is really in operation and really most existent. It's one word that she has identified. Compassion. And so I'll be part of a clergy group that on November the 12th will be gathered in Love Park in Center City there near City Hall. And some clergy friends and I will be reading that document word by word, this charter for compassion, asking, inviting all of us, all those who would hear of the deeper path in this religious life. I found that compassion for me personally is not just necessary in terms of my own aspirations to grow and to be fully alive, but it is most important, I find, for myself when I am at my most angry and when I feel the greatest distance in compassion from those whom I oppose. This past week, I was watching the movie Milk. Any of you have seen that movie Milk? The Life of Harvey Milk that Sean Penn does an amazing job with. Of course, Harvey Milk was killed. He was assassinated, as was the mayor of San Francisco, George Moscone, in 1978. He was assassinated. Harvey Milk was because he spoke for the equality of all people and indeed the equality of his people, gay and lesbian people. It's interesting, during that time, the same arguments were used to establish and to maintain oppression of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people, it always has to do with the kids. There's a character on The Simpsons who, whenever anything comes up that she doesn't like and she's absolutely hysterical, she says, what about the children? Won't someone please think about the children? As if somehow children are the reason that we should deny other people the opportunity to be full citizens in our country. Watching Milk, it was the same exact arguments I hear as I have followed what will be, for me, the most important thing that happens this coming week, which is the vote over to maintain marriage equality in the state of Maine. And I have to say, I've been angry this past week as I've heard those arguments. It has brought out for me some very deep-seated feelings, because I have to tell you, politically, I don't have that many non-negotiables. I believe politics is all about the art of compromise, even as I am a progressive. But for me, there was one non-negotiable, and that is that until all loving adults have the right to marry the person that they love, there will be second-class citizens in America, and that, to me, is completely unacceptable. And so that is an injustice over which I sometimes become deeply angry and outraged. And then, sometimes when struggling with my anger, I always think, what can call me back to my best self? I want to show you right now someone who calls me back to my best self when I am angry and speaks, helps speak for me with a deeper voice. This is a man named Philip Spooner, who some of you might know is 86 years old and lives in the state of Maine. He was speaking last May before the legislature, when the legislature in Maine was trying to establish marriage equality. For me, the truth of what Philip Spooner said was not just in his words, but it was in how he said it. I remember and try to remember in my moments of deepest anger the example set by this man. Simple to the point, direct, And speaking from the heart of his experience and the heart of who we might be and why we exist. I try to remember when I find myself becoming outraged and angry. I try to remember what the Buddha said. He said, in a controversy, the instant we feel anger, we have already ceased striving for the truth. And have begun only to strive for ourselves. I now have begun a practice of watching my anger because I know that when I am aggrieved, even if it is being aggrieved over something that matters very much to me, something that is a non-negotiable, I know when I am aggrieved that my tendency is to feel self-righteous. It is not that my anger sometimes is false. It is that when I am angry, I am much less likely to speak the truth in the same way that Philip Spooner spoke the truth. This past week as I engaged in writing, taking notes for this message, I remember what I said a couple weeks ago, and at the time I was trying to be sort of sneaky with my health and completely flopped and failed anyway. I started the service off by talking about that charged full moment, and I talked about the practice of namaste, which most of you know is a Method uh, from the Hindu tradition, first and foremost, of bowing and recognizing the divine within the other person and recognizing our own divinity as well, and in that, truly honoring another being. Now, I wanted to do that because the flu was coming around, and I thought, okay, this is a way we could recognize each other without touching each other, and then that Tuesday I got sick anyway, so it was completely ineffective. But the, the deeper meaning is, of course, that when we really mean a namaste practice, we can truly recognize we can truly see another. And I think this past week, it has been so important to me to put this into a practice, not just with the people, you know, like the people here, the people I recognize, the people who I see, the people who it's so easy for me <laughs> to namaste to you. So this week, I really wanted to test myself. I wanted to sort of take this out and spin it around and see if maybe this would really work. And so... I, I know what my own triggers are. I especially know what my triggers are socially and politically. So, so this past week, every day, I, I, I did a namaste practice and watched Fox News every single day. <laughs> I know what gets my blood pumping. I know what makes me angry. I know I can't watch Glenn Beck for too long or O'Reilly for too long without starting to feel that self-righteousness to match what I perceive to be their self-righteousness. But when I take a look at someone like Philip Spooner, I really have to ask myself, what good is it other than feeling I am defending myself? What good does my anger do? And I've come to at least the Non-emotional conclusion, it's going to take me a while to get to the emotional conclusion. At least to the conceptual conclusion that actually my anger does no good at all. My anger does no good at all to serve the correction of injustice. You all know the name Thich Han because we work with some of his words every single week. Well, Thich Nhat Hanh has some remarkable resources in helping us work with our anger. Not denying it, but working with it. And I would encourage you to go to his uh, website, which is Plum Village, the community that he serves. I'm going to read just some of the words that he talks about in terms of his vows to work with anger. He said, I am committed to cultivating loving speech and compassionate listening in order to relieve suffering and to promote reconciliation and peace in myself and among people, ethnic and religious groups and nations. Knowing that my words can create happiness or suffering I am committed to speaking truthfully using words that inspire confidence, joy, and hope. This next one that he wrote really, really gets me, and I find it almost impossible to do, but I'm going to aspire to it. When anger is manifesting in me, I am determined not to speak. I will practice mindful breathing in order to recognize and to look deeply into my anger. I know that the roots of anger can be found very often in my wrong perceptions and lack of understanding of the suffering in myself and in another person. And finally, I will speak and listen in a way that can help myself and the other person to transform our suffering and see the way out of difficult situations. What Thich Nhat Hanh says is that anger grows in that seedbed of stress and pain, and probably just builds more anger. I had a friend I went to college with whose dad was one of that generation of young Kennedy workers who went to Washington, you know, the best and the brightest, if you ever read that book. And he was like third undersecretary, very high up in the Pentagon. And he worked with Robert McNamara all throughout those years. And I know. Robert McNamara, that name brings up some very deep pains and scars for for many of you who lived through that age and through that time. My friend told me a story once that Robert McNamara witnessed many, many protests against the Vietnam War during his time when he was Secretary of Defense. And my friend said his dad told him that there was really only one protest that made Robert McNamara look more deeply At the policies he was pursuing and our government was pursuing. He said that it wasn't all the protests of all the college kids out and angry and chanting his name. And it wasn't that. It was a protest once that was really a silent vigil. Of parents of children who were serving in Vietnam. That silent protest, that witnessing to peace and the injustice of the war was the one thing that got through Robert McNamara's own defenses. I think what he is saying is that we can be right without being self-righteous. And that perhaps through our humility, when we are angry, When we are upset, when we are deeply upset, I'm not talking about simple things that, eh, just dismiss it and move beyond it. I'm talking about the kinds of things that really are worth hurt, worth recognizing injustice. And still in those moments, having a deeper humility through which we can practice a kind of non-escalation in our world. Because anger so often does beget more anger. There's a guy named Donald Miller whose writings I absolutely love. He wrote a beautiful book like, uh, called Blue Like Jazz. And the cool thing about Donald Miller is not just a wonderful writer and very literate and very smart, very sensitive, very, very funny. He also explodes all my preconceptions. And I think if you read him, you will probably explode all the preconceptions that you may have, maybe you don't, about what and who a quote-unquote born-again Christian is. He is very open about his relationship with Jesus that stands at the heart of his life. Don Miller is very interesting in many ways, very interesting in this particular way in that he chooses to live out his relationship with Jesus in the context and in the community of Reed College. Any of you know about Reed College? It is one of the most left-wing places in the entire world. It's not the kind of place where very often we think about born-again Christians like would like to hang out. Very often it's the kind of places that we might hear a televangelist condemning. Well... Donald Miller lives with some friends. I don't know if he still does, actually, but at the time he was writing Blue Like Jazz, he did. He lives with a sort of alternative community of born again Christians, people really living out their interpretation of what it means for them to follow Jesus. And they live in that community of Reed College. And he likes to audit some courses there and have a connection with the students. And there was this one particular uh, weekend that comes around every single year at Reed College. And what happens is... This is how um, he describes it very quickly. He said on Friday night, uh, well, they, they close the campus. On Friday night, the students uh, get drunk. And then on Saturday, the students get high. And then uh, by Saturday evening, most of the students get naked. Um, It's kind of a bacchanalia. I mean, it's a big, 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 big party that the freedom-loving people at Reed College want to partake in every year. Not everyone, but a lot of students on campus. And one of the people who he lived with in this sort of off-campus house of these folks who wanted to follow Jesus said, let's set up in the middle of this fair, in the middle of this bacchanalia, let's set up a little shanty, like a little town, and what we'll do is we will offer to take confession of sins. There's going to be a lot of people sitting there. Let's let's offer a confession. At first, Donald Miller was like, this is insane. People people are going to be after us. They're not going to want to do this. Not just that. We're going to to confirm all the worst stereotypes about what people like us believe. And this guy kept pushing and kept pushing and kept pushing. And finally, they said, we're going to go ahead and do it. And then a final twist. The guy whose idea it was that as we set up this little hut that will receive confession, it's actually not about receiving confessions of other people's sins We are going to confess our own sins to all the students at Reed College who wish to hear it. And Donna Miller said, this I can do. I can apologize, even if I wasn't there. I can apologize for the ways in which my tradition has not lived up to the example of Jesus. I can apologize for the Crusades. I can apologize for homophobia. I can apologize for all the ways in which I have not been an authentic, loving follower Of Jesus. And what follows, if you read the story, and I encourage you to at some time, is absolutely cool. The students in the midst of the haze are completely blown away. Expecting to be condemned by someone who they think does a lot of condemning. In fact, what they find is an apology. They find someone and some people who are willing to say, I am not perfect. We are not perfect. And because of that, I would seek to show you my full presence. There is a wonderful naivete to this story. Imagine going to your opponents or your perceived opponents and instead of telling them what they have done wrong, the first thing we would do is confess our own imperfections. I imagine when I first read this story of a right-winger, a dogmatist, you know, any kind of person who normally I think I would oppose, and asking myself what it is that I would say to them about the ways that I have not been true to my ideals of inclusiveness and universal love and my deep belief that all beings, including them, have the capacity for awakening. The ways in which I have not been honest or truthful to what I hold at the center of my being in the center of my heart. I don't anticipate that anytime soon, Glenn Beck or Keith Oberman or Michael Moore or Bill O'Reilly or whatever side, you know, you dislike or whatever side makes you clench your fists will ever say, this is where I, this is where we have been imperfect. It is incredibly naive to think that they would do so. But I have to say that I find that naivete the most healing thing that I could imagine instead of this is what you did and this is where you going this is where you are going wrong this is where i have gone askew back to the beginning back to the phillies and the yankees <laughs> that's win lose and that's okay that that's win lose cuz the stakes aren't very great but where the stakes are higher win lose will not get it done It is deeply naive, I know that. Idealistic to believe in win-win. But if we take something like the most vexing things in our world, the Israelis and the Palestinians, both with an inherent right to live at peace and be at peace and to raise their children, win-lose for them means just more beaters on both sides and just more cringers on both sides and the battle will just perpetuate itself over and over and over again from generation to generation hatred and anger and stress and pain perpetuating itself on and on and on so it may be naive to believe that opponents would lay down their arms through revealing their imperfections. But it is a start towards starting to take apart our belief that when we are angry, we must always be in the right. It is a part of the practice of saying namaste and meaning it to the people that we oppose. It is believing and remaining true to the most ancient part of what I believe is the most important part of our name, our universalist tradition. It is daring to believe that as big as God is and however you may conceive God or conceive God not, that the essence of that experience is love and that love either belongs to all of us or it belongs to none of us. None of us own it but all of us can share in it. So I know that I am naive in terms of wanting to believe in win-win. But win-lose, I'm not sure what lies down that road any longer. Maybe we cannot change the game, but at least in vowing to work with our anger in the company of those who we oppose, We cannot change the game right away. But we can commit to changing the players. And we commit to changing ourselves. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. source of namaste may we have courage may we have courage to recognize the shape of the soul in those who we think may have lost soul May we have courage to recognize that there is a life and a love deeper in all of us than our anger. May we, in practicing with our anger, not deny it, especially when that anger has risen up in the face of tremendous injustice and suffering. May we not say it does not matter, but let us say it does matter. It matters so much that, in fact, the best response we can give to this world, to each other, to the larger being that holds us all, is that voice of compassion deeper than anger. May we offer to the world not a perfect self, but a self that is committed to the work of healing, our own lives first. And from that place, may we indeed be what the world needs so much from us. Amen.